The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the weekly podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post yet still very racial America. You could say all that or just call the show about race. I'm Anna Holmes, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are... Raquel Cepeda. Hi, Raquel. I'm so Hi, glad to have you back. Anna. It's so nice to meet you. And now that I know we're both yeah. so similar, I mean, uh-huh. even, like, I'm stoked. Yeah. I, I, but wait, I don't want to say you anything were personal. <laughs> no, I, I don't want to say anything too personal because right. I don't need to jump on me for like putting uh, yeah. your birthday out there. Yeah, okay? don't. But Raquel and <laughs> I found I'm out hel- that, we're, that, we're, that we're very close, very, very close in age. But like, it wasn't the more important th- thing, the, the birth sign? Yes. We're Is both it? Geminis. Yeah. Is that a problem? Do you, no. Are you a closeted Gemini? <laughs> no, I'm a proud and out Gemini. Okay. <laughs> Hell yes. So I'm really happy to be here. I love your voice, by the way. It sounds so sultry. And I'm really happy, to, uh, obviously, to be here with our other guests, who you'll announce in a minute. And yes. I want to let y'all know, my fam out there, that I read everything, I heard everything, and I'm here because of y'all. So Baby took herself out of the corner and is back. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Rebecca Carroll, who is not close in age to me. <laughs> hey, now. Hey, now. No, Rebecca oh, someone, Carroll. Someone's geez. either really old or young. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wait, AC's in the I'm it, leaving it, that one. AC's laughing. <laughs> Rebecca Carroll, you are the editor of Special Projects at WNYC. You're an opinion writer. Wait, why am I telling you what you are? Rebecca Carroll. <laughs> you who are. Is, who is an editor of Special Projects at WNYC, an opinion writer at The Guardian, and a critic at large for the LA Times. Rebecca, hey. Hey. Hi. Hey. Hey, Rebecca, I Hi. love your haircut. Thank you. I have to say this. Thank and like, you. Your curls are so cute. They're getting really long. And now. I love the way you shaved it on. Do you cut your own hair? No, no, no. But but I uh, I found this great uh, these great young women who do it for me. How often do you have to get it shaved on Every the side? Every couple weeks. Okay. Yeah. You know, there was, there was a dancer that um, I, uh, a friend or colleague, former colleague of mine and I profiled at my last job for a, a kind of mini video bio and she had hair much like actually yours Raquel or maybe like mine except that on the sides it was shaved so when it was down you yeah. couldn't tell and she looked like that's my goal yeah but it was amazing that, because then she put it up and she looked yeah like the a rock whole star. Aste- aesthetic yeah. completely changed yeah it's funny because I used to either wear my hair all completely long or all completely short mm-hmm. and now it's like the best of both kind of I thing. just love Thank the you. way it looks it's like Oh man, it's yeah. really, you look you mm-hmm. look hot. Mm-hmm. Have you been running? Yeah, always. I can tell. You see, <laughs> you look so good. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have uh, a whiskey this. Yeah, this. I know. But you know what's really missing? What I hope when I come back? Okay, some tacos. I gotta talk. We're gonna get into this later in the, uh, in the episode. But there is a place on the way here that has tacos. There's Rocco's tacos. Over. We should have been oh, over. No. I have a fabulous no? wait, wait, taco recipe. AC says no. You do. I have yeah. Eighty four Hoyt Street. Fresh and fast burrito. Day. Oh, okay. why can't we should record yeah, one one great. week? We should record this like on location by like a taco truck. Yeah. <laughs> At least they have, once. Yeah. Do they have margaritas? Just, just eat tacos. All. Or mojitos. The whole time. Mojitos. Yeah. Well, mojitos are dangerous because they don't taste like booze. They taste oh, like sugar. So they taste good. like candy. Yeah. yeah. I can't. I can't drink whiskey. I'm like, oh, it kills me. Well, I can't really drink it either. I can sip it. <laughs> I can't really drink it. Um, last week, by the way, we had a little bit of whiskey in the in the studio. Today, we have coffee and water. So we're going to get going with this episode. And today, we're going to chat about the black cultural moment we're living through and whether we can anticipate a backlash. Oh, and if you didn't notice, 
This week is an all-female, no-white-folks episode. So ladies, yes. let's start representing. Woo. <laughs> um, push it. Push it. Push it real good. Okay. Okay, first we're going to catch up to the election and then the meaning of this guy, Marco Gutierrez, as heard on the show Full Frontal with Samantha B. As Hispanics, we are a primitive un- and underdeveloped culture. We'll take whatever you we'll, whatever we can take if you'll let us. Are you saying we should be frightened of Mexicans? Yes, you should be very frightened. Okay, so <laughs> if you know who Marco Gutierrez is at all, you probably know him as the founder of Latinos for Trump, who predicted on September 1st that if, quote, something isn't done about his imposing and dominant Mexican culture, there would be taco trucks on every corner in the United States. I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The taco trucks comment quickly became a meme. I guess you probably all saw this as well on social media. Everyone was cheering this idea on. Who doesn't like tacos? Actually, I prefer burritos. But yeah, I know that's what I was going to tell you. Tacos, though, they're a special thing. Tacos are special. They are. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's just like burritos and tacos. It's like apples and oranges. I know, but I, just, yeah, I, I have these like memories of my mother's tacos, which, you know, involved, you know, going to the like local big grocery store and getting those rigid corn shells that, that, El, that aren't particularly fresh. And then, you know, Ortega. getting like ground meat and putting a little spice. You know, and, and like that's fun kind of when you're a kid. But like it isn't like they're delicious. <laughs> I make a delicious taco. I make a very delicious taco. So do taco. I. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm coming over tonight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to get back to what Gutierrez said. So. Unlike the taco comment, which I think is ridiculous, what we just heard him say I'd actually define as somewhat dangerous or really dangerous. It's a very self-loathing statement that goes just beyond a dog whistle to Trump supporters who were really anti-immigrant. So I wanted to ask you both, how do you think minorities in general, but Latinos in particular, are supposed to understand Gutierrez and his comments? Well, you know, as speaking as, I guess, the resident Latina in the room, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just talking to my daughter about this actually not too long ago. She's 19. She's in school. Mm -hmm. We all have a Marco in our in our families, (laughs) unfortunately. And I and and her and I, you know, we have to keep it real. You can't criticize somebody without looking at yourself. Yeah. And I was like, you know, had this been, you know, back in the day in the 80s, my father, my own father would have Mm -hmm. been actually wrote a book about it because his self-loathing, actually, the pushback to that was my my desire to, you know, learn about identity and to coalesce with other communities of color. So that happens. And actually what we were talking about was Marco Gutierrez was on PRI once with his daughter at a San Jose uh, Trump rally. And his daughter, first of all, was like, oh my God, somebody actually laid down with this guy, this loser to have a kid. Unbelievable. But anyway, I You're mean, I was born. No. Um, <laughs> yes, him too. Yeah. But Marco Gutierrez and he had, his daughter Emiliana went to the rally with him because she was curious, as did some other young Mexican-American women who actually weren't there because they support Trump. She was actually a Bernie Sanders supporter, mm-hmm. you know, to tell her father, I guess, to amplify that you're on some real bullshit. Mm-hmm. And then she said, you know, before this, you know, my dad and I never, we rarely spoke to each other, but now I guess the, uh, hatred or politics or what have you is actually bringing us closer together. You know, it's a real problem. So that, that I started on the positive side, but the negative side, which is a lot worse, is number one, that he's getting so much media. Right. He's, he was on when he said that taco truck yeah. comment with uh, Senator uh, Adriano Espaillat, uh-huh. who is woke as fuck. 
I haven't seen Adriano Aspeyat hardly ever on on uh, mainstream media, but this guy's been on CNBC, MSNBC. Right. See, so it's like you, when you amplify voices that are that are self loathing, mm-hmm. and then if you think about Latinos. If you talk about immigration, I'm going to book Maria Hinojosa. Mm-hmm. You don't have a lot of diversity, and you have a lot or, or conservatives like Ana Navarro. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't have a lot of diversity when it comes to you know um, schools of thought when mm-hmm. it comes to Latino Americans. Mm-hmm. So that makes it very dangerous because that doesn't do anything. Thing, but have other people that are anti-Trump go, you see, Latinos, they want to be white, they want to pander. But he's like a Hispanic s- Sambo, basically. And every community has them. What I don't understand about him is what sort of profile he's had previously. Like, have you known about him for yeah. a while? Do you think that there are people within the Latino, of course, there must be people within the Latino community who take him seriously, right? But is there anything to what he has to say that resonates with anyone in a legitimate way, or is it all just like bomb throwing? Like what that? he's doing is basically, I mean, colonialism is a serious infection. It affects people, new world people. We are new world people. And when you, you know, and this is one of the reasons why I feel it's so important to decolonize social studies, decolonize history, decolonize the way we learn about each other's histories and about American history. Because he's not only throwing bombs of racial resentment that are like stoking people mm-hmm. that are pro-Trump mm-hmm. and racist. Mm-hmm. He's wearing his own resentment on his sleeves. And that's like a real thing. That's a real thing. I know people that not, don't necessarily, I mean, aren't pro-Trump, but that have that same kind of resentment. So I think, you know, he's an illustration of a bigger problem that I hope we, we deal with. Can you just clarify what you mean? There are just two different kinds of, of resentment happening here. The resentment of his own ethnicity and resentment of Trump and whiteness or? He's giving ammunition to people who resent Latinos, anybody who's not from here moving into the country, even though, as his daughter said in that PRI interview, you know, this is Mexico first. White people right. are the original illegal aliens, if you want to start calling people illegal aliens. Um, so it's kind of absurd. But he's so pandering. I think, number one, he's a con man. So this is, like, this is marketing. A, this is it's, marketing. He's a con man. Let's say he wasn't a con man who got his, his real estate license revoked, who wasn't pandering to Trump and like, you know, and to mainstream white America, who wasn't an ultra assimilationist and a culture, a culturalationist, if that's even a word. There's still a problem. He's still getting the, the opportunity to speak to, you know, important people in the media about and spread this message of self-hatred. He has a resentment toward himself. Because if he speaks the way to, so deplorably, if you will, about Latinos, mm-hmm. he is a Mexican. He's a Mexican-American right. looking at himself in the mirror. Does he speak about Latinos broadly or is he, talk, or is he usually talking about Mexicans? He speaks about Mexicans mm-hmm. usually because mm-hmm. I've seen his like YouTube okay. bullshit channel. Mm-hmm. But he has said, you know, us Latinos, us Hispanics, Mexican-Americans, he uses it inter- interchangeably. But I think that he is trying to capitalize on this, you know, hatred of himself Mm -hmm. and getting that message out. And unfortunately, you have that in all different varying degrees. There's a book that's like required reading called Our Hunger for Memory by Richard Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's like a token of self-hatred. I hate I mean, I read the book. But it's like a, it's like that kind of like resentment where if you come to America, you have to pander, you have to assimilate, you have to turn your back. You can't selectively acculturate. You can't take the best of both worlds. You just have to kind of basically give up who you are for American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. There's something about this guy that, that to me, um, and this doesn't make him any less dangerous, but there's something that's very just pathetic about it. And when I was when I heard about his initial comments and then heard about the most recent ones, I it reminded me a little bit of a piece that I read in the 90s. I think it was the 90s. Maybe it was the early aughts in the New York Times magazine. 
about this guy named Leo Felton, who was an African-American felon who was in prison and was a white supremacist. It was in 2001 or two. Okay, yeah, yeah. but it was, it, was, it, was some, it was some time ago. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, the thing is, is that, like, I, I went back and read the piece, and he's reflecting on his, white, on his championing of white supremacy, because by the, by the time that the piece was written, he was somewhat renouncing it. And he said that, you know, his, his feelings of self-loathing, well, he didn't describe them as that, but he said that they were, it was very existential for him, that his existence was bound to this idea of white supremacy. But if you look at his background, if you look at his childhood, which the author of the piece did, what you find is that this self-hatred and this internalizing of, of the racism this country was built on and continues to be fueled by had a lot to do with his psychological issues as yes. a kid and as a young as a young man. Yes. I guess what I'm saying is when I look at someone like Marco Gutierrez, I want to throw up in my mouth, as they say, but I also feel a, a measure of pity because it just seems... There's something wrong with him. You know, you're scaring me right now. Why? I'm looking at you and Uh-oh. I'm scared. <laughs> I just looked up Leo Felton oh, this morning. Really? Because I edited an article by an author, Jimmy Briggs, for a Russell Simmons One World magazine when uh-huh. I was the editor in chief. Uh-huh. And yes, Jimmy Briggs, it, and it was and it was a I thought the same thing. Yeah. And actually looked him up and he has like a Yoruba name now. Yeah, he does. He has like, a book. So yeah. He has a book on Amazon that, that I think is like self published. Amazing, right? The story was crazy, but Mm -hmm. you know what's interesting? I was so emotionally attached to that book, Mm -hmm. and I personally edited that story, and I Mm -hmm. held it over for a couple of months because Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be perfect, because I do believe that there's some kind of trauma, and I did feel pity not only for Leo Felton but you see all the damage he did yeah and also yes. for we'll put him on we'll put him up on the show about race we'll I, find some articles and put them up I there I think oh okay yeah yeah so people can know what I we're talking said, about I thought you said we're going to put him on I'm no, like no, I think no, he's no, in no. Africa somewhere no, 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 not no, no, that no. they don't have you know radio studios no but. we'll put up some other articles <laughs> yeah. that we're referring mm-hmm. to but anyway I thought about him because I thought about Gutierrez and I thought about my own father and mm-hmm. when in the beginning you know when I first you know I grew up with him I was like oh you're so self-loathing oh god oh this sucks but then when I started to realize his trauma where mm-hmm. it came from Mm-hmm. And the things that he went through, I totally felt this pity and his compassion. Yeah. But I don't feel the same for Gutierrez because I see a coil cell. Because there's something cynical about it. It's I want a job. Yeah. yeah. I want a job and I don't care who I have to, you know. I want a payday. I don't care whose image I have to lynch to get it. Yeah, I right. don't feel any pity for him at all. I think he's a dumbass. And I think that he is somebody who is drawn clearly to proximity to power and will do whatever it is that, that he can or wants to. I mean, it's he's a clown. I mean, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I just wonder, Raquel. Raquel, I can't roll my arms. Come on, Anna, come on. I can't. Do you know? <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> do you know Mexican folks in in your community who? who yes, who, I know Mexican no, no, no. folks. Who would? Hey. Who, who would? <laughs> I, would you let me finish the yeah, question? Like, with you. Give the woman a break. Who would be influenced or swayed by this guy? You know what's crazy. I sat on a panel at Yale a few years ago and I met somebody who was like a Mexican American who became a scholarship kid and, and was in, you know, in politics, what mm-hmm. have you. And mm-hmm. he sounded like that. He was a Republican. He was like interning for somebody. I forget who, but he gave me a ride from my, from my panel to the train. And I remember saying to myself, my God, what happens to you when you get like, so it's like this, this colonization of education but, you know, but that kind of turns into self-loathing. But Marco Gutierrez is not going to be invited to speak on a, a panel at Yale. Okay. I mean, oh, I'm, he might. I'm guessing. He might. At, I mean, people, these colleges invite Milo, whatever the fuck his face is. To, hello. You know, so who knows? And anyway, you want to you wanna amplify voices that keep us divided. 
I've noticed that. You want to keep us divided because what a scary thought if different communities of color actually coalesce, especially during this time. I'd like to know, and I should probably just Google this, and maybe I will after we finish the episode, but I'd like to know if anyone has approached Mr. Gutierrez with the undeniable fact that if he's going to make different, you know, distinctions between Mexico and the United States, and I understand that they are now both different nations, but Mexico, <laughs> much of the United States in the West and the Southwest used to be part of Mexico. So the idea that that Mexican culture is dominant or imposing, well, okay, th- th- those are u- words that are being used as as pejoratives. But well, of course, there's a lot of Mexican culture within the United States because the United States was once part of Mexico. I mean, like you can't yeah. you can't separate the history of the United States from from that of Mexico at all. So, yeah. and I would like to know what his response to that would be if it was posed as a more articulate question than the one that I just, you know, posed. But, but when you're a Trump promoter or surrogate, you don't have to have answers. He's not a surrogate. Or, well, um, I mean, or, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I use I don't that mostly not on. in the in the formal term. Well, I thought he was a surrogate. Until I read this uh. morning, I didn't know. I thought he was a surrogate. Until uh, John Cordova, who's part of the Trump's Trump spokesman, mm-hmm. he actually said this guy is not. He's not. But that even fucked my head up even more. Because yeah. I'm like, how is this dude getting yeah. on this national press mm-hmm. and on like legitimate, you know, uh, because uh, shows. he coined a phrase Latinos for Trump, and like, and there were there were TV bookers and producers who were like, aha. Yo, there were Latinos for for Obama. I didn't see them all over no, the place I on know. TV. I know. It's just so weird. It's just so weird to me. Like, how did he get on? He wants it really badly. That's how. Well, I'm going to leave him there for now. But if you want to chime in, even just to applaud the idea of taco trucks, or in my case, burritos, shoot us a voicemail or an email. The address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. Next up, something to actually celebrate a bit. We're living through a great moment in black culture right now. There's the pop stuff, Beyonce, Blackish. There's more artsy stuff. See Rebecca's recent LA Times article on Aperture for that. And the National Book Awards had several black winners this year. But in the midst of this, more often than not, unapologetically black cultural moment, is there reason to fear a backlash or are we living through it? Rebecca. Yeah, I'm not, I don't fear a backlash because I feel like we're always in backlash. Like backlash with what? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the existence we're of perpetual black America, b- yeah, uh, backlash. We're, we're always living through it. I mean, that's what it means to be black in America is mm-hmm. to constantly be. I mean, does it get, does it black get worse than Ooh, <laughs> coin? I mean, does it get <laughs> worse than shooting 12 year old boys with with toy well, guns? Does it get worse than Trump for president? I mean, it's always I, I always bet it can happening. get worse. And I don't want to think in the ways housed, but I'm talking about it. Could, could there be a backlash to the cultural ascendancy and the focus and the opportunities that are being given to African-American creators and other creators of color? I don't. Mm. I don't think so at all. I think that that Trump is a backlash to Obama. Mm-hmm, yep. And I think that the what's happening, it's not just the arts either. I mean, it, you know, student protest and activism across college campuses sure. everywhere are talking about protesting buildings named after slave owners. Yeah. Colin Kaepernick, mm-hmm. you know. I'm interested in focusing on on the culture aspect of it in particular because, because that, I would argue, oftentimes has a wider, more subversive effect on on whites than explicit protests. That doesn't mean that one's better than the other, but I, but like, I do feel like we're in a moment 
yes. right now. But I think that, 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 that it's part of a, a larger groundswell. Okay. And I think that, that it's happening prominently in culture and media and entertainment is really important. That's mm-hmm. like, that's the lens. That's mm-hmm. where we see it. And Kendrick and Beyonce and mm-hmm. Jay-Z just did yeah, a narrative yesterday. video yesterday in the mm-hmm. Times. I mean, when yeah. was Jay-Z ever in yeah. this? Con- but, but you know what? I'm not mad. I'm not mad at that. Well, the thing is, you know, I, I would think and, and do th- actually believe that the growing number of African-American artists who are who are having their, their stories and their voices amplified is also leading to maybe, I don't know if it's more activism, but a lot of them are speaking out as well, as you just as you just noted about Jay-Z. So it's not just that we have that we're seeing more and more African-Americans in film directing or what have you or, or, or in fiction writing, or at least that we're hearing about more of them. It's that that those who that we are hearing about are, are speaking out. Using about, that about platform, pol- yes, yes. using that medium, whatever it is, for some kind of cultural expression and activism mm-hmm. for, you know, that, that is the racial inequality and inequity that, that is a current in every single thing that we are seeing um, being amplified. Mm-hmm. And also a foil to all the, you know, horrible and terrible negative images and Trumpism. And I wasn't surprised at all. I, I remember talking to my husband about this over dinner. And I said, you know, the harder it gets for us and the more we feel like we're backed into a corner, Mm -hmm. people of color are going to express themselves. They're going to use that gift that's in them to to create cultural productions, different kinds of resistance. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me a lot, actually, because I keep on thinking about the 80s because that's when I first met Trump. Mm -hmm. And I met Trump vis-a-vis Central Park Five ad. Uh, Yeah. So I can't keep, you know, I keep thinking about that. And I feel like, you know, back then and even before then. You had Reaganomics. Reaganomics, you know, Reagan wasn't great for people of color. And I remember the Bronx, you know, having burnt out uh, buildings and whatnot. And people feeling like if you looked at the way it's so hard to even think about Central Park Five, because being from New York and being around a teenager at that time Mm -hmm. and seeing four black American kids and one Latino kid getting being called for the death penalty. That's what what Trump did. Mm It kind of illustrates how it felt to be a young person of color mm-hmm. color at that time mm-hmm. and the stress of having and feeling like you could be discarded and nobody would even notice. Yeah. But I remember like, you know, I said, well, I'm sure cultural movements are going to are going to spawn out of this, you know, from this time, because if you look at Reaganomics. Hip-hop came out of that. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop culture came out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you had people that were criminalized. They had their own fashion, made something out of nothing, turns into, you know, all these different tenets like uh, rap music and DJing and, and fashion and dancing. And I feel like, you know, it's only a natural occurrence to have some kind of pushback. I mean, well, I think that the, I'm, I'm sorry, no, no, go ahead. That, that hip-hop, which is a really strong example, is, is a little bit different just in that it was very reactionary. And less sort of active, actionary, right? I mean, it was sort of like, this is how we're feeling. This is what's happening. And we need to express. And and that's huge and, and sustaining and enduring and important. But I feel like folks like Kendrick or Beyonce or Jay-Z or, or you know, not just hip-hop stars, but but artists and, and writers, Ta-Nehisi Coates and all of these people who are actually like saying, okay, I have this medium. I have this art. I have this, this talent. And I'm going to tell you specifically what I'm looking at and what you need to look at right now, we're going to keep pressing forward and putting this out there and in your face. 
Yeah, but around that time that I'm talking about with Central Park Five, it's around the time of Public Enemy and of music being used as a tool for co- you know for us to right. coalesce and for and for movement. And then you think about also I was going to mention around that same time in the South Bronx, it was you know classic salsa was was being born, and that was like a, a lot of Latino Americans, it, you know Puerto Rican, Dominican Americans, Caribbean Americans' response to the Vietnam War and kind of um, discovery or assertion of their places being people of African descent. And celebration of identity and such. So, I mean, you know, I, I see that happening anytime something like this. We're, we're, want, we're living in a, cook, in a pressure cooker. I want to add a little bit of context or quote someone who can put some context to this. So earlier this year, I, I wrote a piece for the Times Magazine about the word diversity, kind of explication. A good uh, piece, a very good piece. Complaint about yeah. the, the word diversity. And when I was doing some reporting for it, to figure out how I felt about it and to quote some people I talked to Jeff Chang, who actually has a new book out soon, I hope we can get him on, called Who We Be, A Cultural History of Race in Post-Civil Rights America. So when we were talking about diversity and this kind of growing ubiquity of the word, he went on at length about what he called the golden age of black television, the period starting with In Living Color, the show on the Fox network and how the Fox network, which at that time was fairly new, was a kind of vanguard of amplifying black voices via the television shows that it was that it was developing and programming. But then Fox got the Super Bowl. It got the rights to the Super Bowl, and which is to say that it got legitimate and it started dumping all the black shows. And this was also right after the L.A. riot. So Jeff said something to me that, you know, with regards to the golden age of black television, the door literally slammed shut and people couldn't get work for years. And it was almost until the second term of Obama when you see diversity on TV come back. And that's because of Shonda Rhimes and because of Modern Family. That's a direct quote. So what was interesting to me is that the larger point he was trying to make was he was celebrating the cultural moment that we're having right now, but he was also predicting a backlash to it because it happened before. Because Back then, you know, when we had, you know, Fox and other networks like the CW and the WB were embracing black narratives, um, there was a moment when when they stopped doing that because of there were there was some sort of backlash. But that those that those narratives and the amplification of those stories and those storytellers was or were in many ways a reaction to the L.A. riots, which had happened a few years prior. So what I'm saying is that according to Jeff and I mean, I don't have him here. Maybe he, you know, would disagree now. I don't know. But it seems to me that. This stuff goes in cycles and that if we're in the midst of an upswell or groundswell, we're probably going to face a backlash to that as well. And, and, you know, again, I think this is part of with regards to Donald Trump's ascension. I think that you're you know, that you're this is part of the backlash. I just wanted to put that in context because I thought that was very interesting way to look at history and and culture that I'd never thought of before. I would argue that what's different is the outing of whiteness and white privilege Mm -hmm. as a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're talking about white identity in a way that we never have before. And there's an anxiety around that. And there's a, a reality around that. And I think that in some ways that that sort of tips the scale a little bit because white people are or white in general are sort of realizing that what is that? And it's something that can be deconstructed. It's something that can be criticized. It's something that can be really looked at closely. And that shifts the paradigm a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of your colleagues at The Guardian, Sarita McFadden, she wrote recently, as black deaths overtake the news cycle and the current presidential campaign slog has shaken awake racist inflammatory rhetoric that many non-black Americans want to believe was dead, black art is unconcerned with the emotional well-being of white folks. And I wanted to know if that's how you read this moment as well. 
Not how I read this moment. Mm-hmm. I certainly, I, I think that all the time, and I'm and I'm going to do something that I, that I generally don't, and kind of hate when other people do. I think that real art, um, if it's <laughs> if it's real, mm-hmm. is not going to be concerned with anybody's well being. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. I mean, I think you've got to go all out and off about what you're doing, and and whether it's music or or painting or dance yeah. or whatever the art form is in order for it to really hit. I would agree with you, except yeah. for the fact that, that, that the gatekeepers who make some of that art possible will make that art very concerned about the mo- emotional well-being of, let's say, white folks. So, I mean, uh, I mean are you calling television art? I think television I can, call, can be art. Minute, sure. I call American crime art. I call some TV art. Yeah. I call yeah, Queen sure. Sugar art. I like Queen Sugar. <laughs> I haven't I seen it yet. Say, yeah, it's, yeah, that's definitely oh, art. That's definitely that's art, art, but that's so, also right. Oprah's, but Oprah's you, the gatekeeper on that. I mean, she, who else is going to do right. that show? Well, it's possible yeah. someone else would have done it, but I mean, I, I don't think not that only like Oprah would have like done that. it. Maybe not, not like, like that. Because no. yeah. you know what I'm seeing? Like we're talking about backlash, and I'm trying to, the, the two words sent out to me, diversity. First of all, I wish it was another word for diversity. And I've called Inclusion. out to Oh my God, didn't we do this We did this before last time. And I said, racial conversancy. And you're like, wah, wah, wah. And I said, somebody had once tweeted us amalgamagical and I was like that's a pretty sounding word but like diversity to me now is kind of empty it's yeah. like okay it's not enough to have like somebody who's for example it's marketing uh, speak it's marketing speak and it's also like okay fine MSNBC has somebody that was Latino on yeah. but it was Marco Gutierrez yeah, right. it's not the right kind you have to have the right, right kind of people with different politics and different point of views and from different cities and you know what I mean yeah well, well the problem with diversity and the thing I somewhat argued in that piece was that people can throw the word around and think that they're doing something Thing, just by just by invoking just by, the, yeah, by the using word. Yeah. the word right exactly exactly and then as far as backlash you know as you as you guys are talking I'm thinking like okay we Latino Americans don't really you know, have a lot of gatekeepers enabling us really to do mm-hmm. things on the same plane right now with the same kind of visibility mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. where somebody I would know would do a documentary and it takes them a year or two I'm working on my second one now it's like my fifth year because yeah. it's about Latino American teens mm-hmm. so it's not sexy but when I look at TV and see the things that get funded it's about like you know not that she doesn't count if she's that important but like people like Erica Mena are there people like that in our community mm-hmm. you know in those hip hop shows those I don't watch them but like you know the, the love and hip hop so I keep on seeing that the narratives that get the stories that get told about my community mm-hmm. are too often not always but too often put in that set in that kind of yeah. in that with that kind of backdrop do you watch Orange is the New Black I, I definitely do. Okay, so what, what, what are your thoughts about about the, its portrayal of of? Um, I thought I thought last season was uh-huh. really good because uh-huh. I liked the way they dealt with the whole spiritual thing. You know, with what, one of the characters, you know, her boyfriend was abusive, and I guess he died in some kind of fire, and and that to me kind of had that was correlated to something to do with Santeria and I mm-hmm. and I knew that whatever the even the, the details in that particular episode and that her storyline they mm-hmm. must have consulted with somebody because mm-hmm. it was really accurate but then you know when I saw for example in this this season especially in the beginning well I liked the fact that they focused more on the Dominican American like there were so many things that were wrong mm-hmm. like for example the the young lady was it Jessica yeah, the, the one who's really who's who who is like, I love her. who has lots of makeup. Yeah, and who has lots of makeup. Well, yeah, well, yeah, anyway, yeah. she's Dominican, and then her father is supposed to be Dominican, like right. a Dominican drug dealer. But right. his accent is is Mexican or Central American. Uh, okay, like there's no. Mm. And then they talk these two white girls and the the former supremacists talk about like Dominicans. You know, she says something about Dominicans being all self loathing or hating Haitians or hating black people. That is a monolith. 
Yeah. Not all. I married actually to a, somebody who's half African American, half Haitian. Mm-hmm. I'm Dominican American, mm-hmm. and it's while the, it's the ruling class, we're amplifying and a set of like Orange Is the New Black, the ruling class, and then also an older generation's point of view mm-hmm. that doesn't represent for real everybody. So mm-hmm. we're being painted still in broad strokes. So yeah. I, as you're talking about backlash, that's what's been going through my mind. Well, the other thing I wanted to bring up with regards to a backlash, another kind of I'd say a, a current example of this was the controversy that erupted at a. At a writers' festival in Brisbane, Australia, last week, when the novelist Lionel Shriver railed against those who would keep her and other artists from cultural appropriation, or rather, appropriating the voices of those unlike them in their art, like fiction writing. So Lionel Shriver did this while wearing a sombrero. Um, <laughs> I, is this <laughs> is this just a white writer who's upset that people tell her she can't write black characters, and and can white writers not write black characters? I mean, you know, if you trust yourself, if you think you're talented, I mean, if you trust your talent as a white writer to write about black characters or mm-hmm. characters of color, go ahead and do that. I'll read it and let you know. <laughs> Ditto. I feel the you same know? way. <laughs> I'll read it. <laughs> I feel the same way. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes I get a little frustrated again being in Dominican American, being Latina, because I remember vi- this vividly, you know, going around shopping my first book about, you know, growing up, uh-huh. the first memoir by a uh, non-academic memoir by a Dominican American mm-hmm. writer. Mm-hmm. And it's just now that's been, you know, recently mm-hmm. has been released. Mm-hmm. And then I remember going and talking to this one very respected editor. She said, oh, no, we already have a Dominican book. It's this white guy right. who actually lives in my but neighborhood. This is, this is, yeah. this is d- diversity, quote unquote, this right? Diversity. They ha- we already have a Dominican book. Right. And, it's, and I'm like, well, who's writing? Because I want to meet her. I want to I want to form a bond. I want to, you know, I want to be there for her. I want to have a sisterhood mm-hmm. or or a sister brotherhood. I don't know. what She's like, oh, no, it's a white guy. He's who work for the public library, whatever. And I skimmed through it and I was just like, oh, God. So it's frustrating. But I agree with Rebecca. If you think you can write it. Write it, and mm-hmm. you know, folks will let you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, do the work, man. Do the re- did mean do, do the research, and it, you know, the the flip side of that is like Franzen, you know, like who says I don't want to write about Jonathan Franzen, who says I I, I can't write about black people because I've never loved a black woman. Do you remember? Yeah, that's saying? right. Yeah. Um, and I don't <laughs> want him writing about I mean, black people. But but at the same that time... That rubbed me the wrong way, but I was also like, at least he's honest. Exactly I mean, I don't I'm know saying. why he has to have loved a black woman in order to be right about well, black right. people, for, for God's sake. For but. sure. But again, like, if you're, if you're trying to write characters that are from other ethnic and racial backgrounds and you don't have any of those folks in your life... Yeah, know well enough not to do it. What do you guys think about, oh, you beautiful women? Sorry, my bad. Um, <laughs> you can say you guys. Yeah, yeah, no, but I'm looking, I'm staring at visions of oh, beauty okay. here. So I, I have like, to say you like, lady, okay. you goddesses. All right, okay. You goddesses. What do you guys queens. think about, you see guys, you queens, um, you kings. What do you think about <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's depictions of... of uh, I can't even, I can't <laughs> even really. I mean, I... Of I, African-Americans? I, let's just say Django. Let's just keep it on Django, obviously. I, I I don't know if I have a good answer because I I got real torn up about that and I saw that film with my parents over Christmas, <laughs> which was very uncomfortable. I, I, I don't know. I, I I haven't I haven't processed all that. It's been years, but I haven't processed it. I've written about it, and you know, I mean, he he has mastered the art of cultural appropriation so masterfully that he makes it look like he's not doing it. Really? Wow. Don't you think he's very obvious about who his influences are? Yeah. I mean, I, Wu-Tang. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't feel like, I don't feel like he's a, he is a cultural, appro- first of all, I don't have a problem with cultural appropriation. I mean, like just that phrase, 
already has a negative connotation. I think that people are inspired by the things that they encounter and that they love. And, you know, I mean, I think like that's how creativity works. I get it. I think there's a problem when people who are in more privileged classes benefit from the work that the, uh, the people in more oppressed classes revolutionized and don't give them credit. There's lots of issues there, but I don't know that just by definition that that, that cultural appropriation is a bad thing even though it sounds like a bad thing. But Tarantino, no, I, I think he's very obvious about who his influences are. But that's not, influences are different than actually just taking a culture and objectifying it. Okay. Okay. So, a la, a la Michael Rappaport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can someone explain yeah. to me exactly what that was all about? I just saw people online who were upset at him and that dude rubs me the wrong or has rubbed me the wrong way in the past, but I'm not sure I understood what he, was going on. He rubs me the wrong way because I feel like, okay, you can write or do whatever, like you guys were saying, but He's like takes he looks at black culture, black American culture in a very superficial way where the only way you can talk it feels like the only way you can talk to somebody who's who's not white is like, you know, over like overdoing it, like kind of exaggerating stereotypes that already exist about people of color. So he kind of bothers me because he seems to be like almost condescending in the way he expresses his Tarantino. Uh, no, uh, Michael Rappaport. Rappaport. Yeah, I mean, Tarantino. I mean, he he everybody is a magical Negro to him. Mm. Um, and I have told this Ooh. this anecdote before, but years ago I worked on a show where um, I was a producer, a book producer, and um, he was on it. And uh, and part of the job is who was know, on it, Tarantino, Tarantino okay. is seeing them, you know, into the green room and out of the green room and so on and so forth. And I was seeing him out, and I couldn't resist a young whippersnapper. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, what is it with you and black folks? I think this is right after Foxy Brown or something. He's like, black folks are awesome, and I just oh. felt like. Oh. Like, yeah, but he's like, not like that, Michael Rappaport. But in, the, in that you know? in that moment, it was like, oh, they're what you want them to be. I see. They're something that you can somehow objectify, fetishize, or, or exoticize, I think he fetishizes. exoticize, yeah. and fetishize. And it was just like, ew. He, he fetishizes in in some respects, but performance is what I'm talking about. Like with Michael Rappaport, I haven't thought about the dude until I saw him like trending, I guess, on Twitter mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. because somebody was mad about some kind of uh, comment that he made about protesting oh the i National think maybe Anthem he was talking about Kaepernick, just, to oh, bring really? it, just to bring it back around yeah, yeah. <laughs> he may have been mm. uh, about doing that on like 9-11 or whatever oh that's right yeah yeah I, I remember that so okay this is the reason why i am optimistic about this cultural moment not undergoing this sort of backlash where or the same backlash that it did before like the one that jeff that i that jeff had described to me it's because of the internet i think that a lot of the reason for this cultural ascendancy is because of the internet. And I think that a lot of the reason why there's not going to be a suppression or as big a suppression of it is because of the internet. Because what the internet showed to many people, some of whom are gatekeepers, but most of whom are just like, like ourselves is, is, is that, is that there's audience, there are audiences who want stories by people who are other than white men that reinforce that there's an excitement around that. There's an excitement around different types of stories and storytellers. I don't think that you can, Suppress that. <laughs> There's also a kind of extraordinary accountability that you wouldn't mm-hmm. think yes. otherwise, right? Yes. So, so yeah. you know, when April Rain did the hashtag Oscars So White and yeah. people started picking that up, the media, mainstream media, and using it without accreditation, everybody went in. And also, that's where people of color are on the internet. You know, that's where there is... What do you mean without, without accreditation? What do you mean? Like, just referring to it without just saying this hashtag yeah, just, was oh. created by... Oh, yeah. I see. I, I I'm one of those people who like doesn't think that people have to, you know, that like yeah, I do. yeah, I, 
Yeah. I don't think that people have to get credit for hashtags. I'm, I'm not. Oh, I'm, I do. I'm, when they make movements. But Rebecca, I'm not saying she shouldn't be credited. I'm saying that like if, if a news organization doesn't credit her for it, that that, that that there should not be a big outcry or as big of an outcry about it as there was. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying the focus should be on the conversations that ensue because of the hashtag as opposed to. I want to get credit and be famous for this. And I'm not saying that she said oh, that. Okay. Well, I'm not I, saying she yeah. said that. But I have seen that happen in other cases with regards to hashtags that are created. And, you know, but then, then we're getting into my issues with, with Twitter and people uh, who I think sometimes come across as being more invested in amplifying themselves yes. Yes. Well, and, their, yes. and their brand and yeah. the conversation. And the conversation is the more important thing. Yeah. And I'm not accusing this young woman of doing any of that because I wasn't paying attention at the time. But I'm talking about yeah. other things in the past. Yeah. And right. stuff that I no, see now. I agree with that. The yeah, conversation should take precedence to your personal branding. But period. everything is marketing now, no? It's what it, it's what it feels like. I mean, look, operate, now I just looked at that, the hashtag Operation Taco Bowl. That that Mar- <laughs> no, wait, see, wait, I'm not wait, even drawn to that. Like, I, what's that one? I'm yeah. gonna look at it because I it, it's about Marco Marco Gutierrez and, oh, okay, and the, the okay. self loathing folks. I gotta know what everybody's thinking. You know what I mean? Even if it's even if it's bullshit. Yeah, I think that we can move on <laughs> to our next and last segment commentary, etc., um, which is about recommendations. But um, first, before we do that, actually, one thing I forgot to ask was, I, I want to hear from from you two, and then from the listeners later, what is the good stuff that's been making you think and exciting you in terms of culture, pop culture, high culture, people of color, creators, stories? You mentioned Queen Sugar. What else is going on that that, that you want to point people to or that you're excited by? I know this. he's not especially... New, but I can't stop listening to Anderson Pack. Okay, can you can you can you can, can you explain for the, the old can man. you explain who that is to the listeners? And that's because your man put you up on him. He did, he did <laughs> my man, the former he DJ. He put me up on yeah, him too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. Uh, I think his his he's black and Japanese. I think. Yeah, and he or I think is Vietnamese. Vietnamese. Black and Vietnamese. And he is this young brother who just. I mean, makes music that is. It's sort of. It's kind of. It's hip hop, but it's also just kind of. I don't know. How would you describe it? It's just, it just, you feel it. I think like a, a smoother version of Kendrick Lamar, like yeah. a more sing. Somewhere like if, between Kendrick and um, D'Angelo. Yeah, right? yeah. exactly. Yeah. Ooh, that was yeah. a great <laughs> like, yeah. one line review. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Uh, you should definitely. Hollywood movies. It's a cross between. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Top Queen Gun. Sugar. I mean, I can't say mm-hmm. enough about. The writing mm-hmm. and the cinematography. Mm-hmm. Cinematography is, is dope. dope. She yeah. must have oh money though to make that. Of course she does. I yeah. mean, and she works her ass yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. And I and I just love the not overstating, but just the just the natural organic inclusion of black Americans, but mm-hmm. also Latinos. Mm-hmm. And I like seeing communities of yes. color and yeah. sharing the same space. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna watch it. I'm probably gonna start watching some of it this weekend. I have to say I have a pretty unpopular opinion with regards to Ava DuVernay, which is not about her personally. I didn't think Selma was that great. It was a fine movie. I didn't think it was amazing. I think it was great that it got made. I thought it was I, great that it got made, too. I think it was great that it got made, and I think that it was an, an achievement right there, and I, and I didn't think it was a bad film, but I didn't think it was a great film. I don't. I, have no, I, have, I'll, I'll, I haven't thought about it since. I have no interest to see it again. That's my kind of definition of what yeah. a great film is. I don't think it was a great film. And actually, I made that comment to someone the other day, and she was like, me too. <laughs> like, it was a yeah. secret. That's neither here nor there. I'm just thinking about Ava DuVernay, who has a new documentary that's, I believe, opening the New York Film Festival mm-hmm. um, about, first, about, about mass incarceration. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll be on the lookout for also, that. Also, who's seen Atlanta? 
Uh, that's the other thing I'm going to watch this weekend. I haven't yeah. either, but I just, I, I keep, everybody keeps talking about it. I do want to also say I was at Toronto last weekend yeah. and was fortunate to spend a couple of days with the folks from Hidden Figures, the cast, Octavia Spencer, mm-hmm. Taraji Henson, mm-hmm. and uh, Janelle Monet mm-hmm. um, and Pharrell, uh-huh. who, who is a producer and also did a couple of songs. And it's a film that's based on a true story mm-hmm. about these black women who worked at NASA. Yes. And, oh, and man, it's not it. completed, yes. but they showed a reel of some of the scenes and... I don't know if it will be a great movie. Yeah. Um, it's directed by Ted Melfi, who also did St. Vincent. Uh-huh. So it's not by a black director, yeah. which which I was, you know, raised some questions for me. Not to say that, that he can't do it well, but it's so particularly about a, a time when it was difficult, impossible, extraordinary, remarkable for these black women who were mathematicians and engineers and did these yeah. unbelievable. When is it coming out? It's coming out in January, I think. Oh, I'm excited because yeah. I also it's, like it's the book, But yeah, <laughs> I, I like black women, but, and but I like based, but it's based on. I mean, it was it was sold as a book proposal, so yeah. the book just came out. Okay, by Margot Shetterly. I'm sorry that I can't remember her full name. It's three names, but I was so struck, and I said to all of them, "It's like we celebrate our entertainers and sometimes our activists if they're at Martin Luther King." <laughs> Or if we shot them, you know what I mean? Like um, if they died some tragic death. But right. but these but these mm-hmm. hidden figures, these women, it was really mind blowing. And, yeah. and it, which speaks to the to the actresses as well, who mm-hmm. are all phenomenal. I mean, Janelle Monae is just a force. And I think Taraji, I think that sounds great. And I and I wonder whether whether that would have been a project that would have gotten any attention or amplification six, seven years ago. Again, I think that that has a lot to do with the fact yeah. that it was a white director. Who, yeah. He's the one who brought yeah, exactly. the story. Yeah. He's the, he brought the That's story. That's a whole other story. Yeah. Okay, listen, guys, there's so much good stuff out there. Tell us what's been making you think about the current moment in black culture or in culture and the reactions to it you might have witnessed. Shoot an email or a voice memo to showaboutrace at gmail.com. Uh, quick producer note before we move on. Anderson Pac is black and Korean. Oh, oh we're both wrong. We're both wrong. Uh, That's okay. Fine. Yeah. Okay. It is time to make some recommendations ourselves. Now we just had some. Rebecca, what have you been reading or watching or listening to lately that our listeners need to check out? Okay, shameless plug here. The podcast that I produce with WMYC, There Goes the Neighborhood, mm-hmm. which is a limited series about gentrification in Brooklyn, and I'm extremely proud of it. And I'm actually be. recently listening to it again, in part because the original score by Terrence Blanchard kills me every single time, mm. but also because we're gearing up to um, consider a season two, which is exciting. Great. Um, and I'm, then I'm reading this uh, this remarkable story about Ryan Speedo Green. Do you have your... No. He is a, a rising opera star. Yeah, this black rising opera star, this very, very tall fellow. It's it's written by a New Yorker journalist, Daniel Bergnon, I think is his name. But it's just unbelievably compelling and almost too crazy, too dramatic to look at where this guy came from. And what his relationship was with his mother, who was extremely abusive, and and but he loved her so much, and his father was been part of it. But to go on to become an mm-hmm. opera singer, it's just very, very moving. Great, Raquel. What about you? Well, I haven't been reading anything that's really interesting because I've been so busy working on my book about gentrification in Inwood, or really about the changing face, the changing self of my community in Inwood. But. I wanted to recommend two things that I've watched that I think are cool. And one of them we touched on, which is the war on drugs is an epic fail. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting. I love, you know, the policy and the experiential coming colliding. Um, I think that when you do that, you speak to more people. And I I really, really dug it. It's on New York Times. Yeah. Can you you elaborate a little bit for people who don't know what that is? 
It's a three minute and 58 second animation collaboration between Jay-Z and Molly Crabapple. Mm -hmm. I love her work. Oh my God. Anyway, and produced by uh, Dream Hampton. And I really loved it. Oh, did Dream produce that? She produced it, yeah. So I really like, you know, the whole you know, policy talk and, and information, mixing that with kind of like a palatable speak and yeah. and experiential learning. And, you know, Jay-Z's, you know, grew up and lived in yeah. that, you know, he understands yeah. why so many of us who grew up in that same time mm-hmm. believe that this new war on drugs is such a slap in the face mm-hmm. that kind of articulates a little bit of it. Yeah. One and of the that many reasons. is art. Yeah, that's art. Yeah. And I love it. And I love that he did it and that yeah. he took the time out to do it. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was fabulous. And the other thing I wanted to recommend was America by the Numbers and New Deciders by Maria Hinojosa with mm-hmm. Maria Hinojosa. It premiered on September 6th on PBS, but you can watch it online. And for it to be a PBS show, it's really good because it's really non-binary. Mm-hmm. So it kind of challenges the whole, you know, black and white binary racial conversation that we're having mm-hmm. about almost everything mm-hmm. in America. So I like uh, starting in the gray. I like okay. starting in like yeah. a, com- in a very co- in a complex uh, place. And she does that with that show. You can watch it online. And, and I think it's every maybe every Sunday at 10. Check it out online on PBS, you'll, you'll, it's the new deciders. I like that phrase, starting in the gray. That's good. Mm-hmm. I like that one. Speaking of starting in the gray, <laughs> kind of, um, my recommendation. Fifty Shades? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Wow, I, got you <laughs> I have better jack-off material back. than that. Uh, <laughs> my, recommendation, my recommendation is also very self-serving. It's the podcast, The Mashup Americans. And this is self-serving because the latest episode stars moi. Yay. I'm in conversation with the Mashup founders, Amy Choi and Rebecca Lehrer, talking about being the product of a mixed marriage and race and legitimacy and all sorts of other things, including the part where I invoke a race war. So <laughs> take a listen. Ooh. It's Ooh. everywhere yeah. you find Shopping podcasts <laughs> on iTunes at The Mashup Americans. I hear you also talk about your jerry curl. I do. And right. there are, I don't see a jerry curl in that hand. No, 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 she was, no, when, no, she was no, when I was grade. younger. When Cecil the barber gave me a jerry curl, thanks oh. to my mom. Do you have any photos? Did you use yeah, Afro yeah, Sheen? No, no, I used Carefree Curl. Carefree oh. Curl or, a- or Afro Carefree Sheen, curl, you know what I'm talking curl about, right? Activator. Do you know that like the branding or the aesthetics of the Carefree Curl bottle have, I don't seem to have don't think have changed in the I don't know 30 years since I used it <laughs> so like if you funny. see it but in were, Wayne Reed yeah, yeah. But, but you remember the Afro the Afro Sheen like the brown bottle with the fro no okay. because I only used Carefree Curl okay. like that was like that was my Such jam <laughs> well because he the thing is I followed directions and he said you have to use this brand you have to use this right. stuff on your hair and I did and I never questioned it if I had actually had like I don't know a bit of an independent mind, I would have maybe thought, maybe I don't need to use the curl activator. Because the thing was, is that I put a lot of it in my hair. Sure. Because I thought that it was going to like do something besides just moisturize it. And it did do something besides moisturize it. It left a trail of grease Ew, everywhere I you're went. Close, yeah. so you, you had your, that your carefree curl and your aquaphor. <laughs> I want curl. Yeah. You had that soul glow. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for today. Our producer is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvey. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can check out and subscribe to all of its compelling podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can also follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com. Now accepting voice memos. I actually, I really like the voice memos. I think those are, those are, we should have more of those. Please do those. Thanks for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Raquel Cepeda and Rebecca Carroll, I'm Anna Holmes. 
And you haven't said, and we won't stop until racism oh, is over. I can't, I can't, I can't. I tried it in, in another like taping <laughs> and, and it just came out. I sounded so fucking corny that I was like, I can't do it. So you say it. Yeah. Okay, fine. And we won't stop until racism is over. Bo- what? Bo- 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 <laughs> <laughs>